Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Christian Church is well known for our great holy days, Easter and the resurrection, Christmas and the birth of God in our flesh. Folks, not even Christian or barely Christian, come on those days, and we throw our best party for them. There's a third such feast, less well-known, no secular mascot for this feast, no bunny, no Santa, no more attendance on this day than any other, no marketer has figured out how to get us to spend more than we meant to for this feast. It's today, Pentecost, the birth of the church the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all peoples. Cue the parade. Not quite. Thursday night at Holy Blossom Temple on Bathurst Street, one of our attenders asked me, hey, you're a Christian minister. Surely there's a special greeting for Pentecost. You said it's Pentecost this weekend. What do we say to each other on Pentecost? Our Jewish hosts had just greeted one another in Hebrew for Shavuot, and she looked at me with an open face, ready to learn something cool, and I had to say, uh, we don't have one. Sorry. Maybe we'll write one for next year. See you then. It's a greeting in slow motion. You heard the story in lots of languages. Jesus has ascended back into heaven 50 days after his resurrection, and his disciples wait. They don't just do something, they stand there. You would think that witnessing the resurrected Jesus would be enough. Receiving his forgiveness, hearing a dead guy teach again, you would think that all of that would launch them into the world to tell everyone about the resurrection and the new creation God is bringing. But no, they wait. For what? Oh, don't worry, you'll know when it comes. One of the most important commands God can ever give us is to wait, do nothing, stand still, be at peace. Reverend Laurie preached not too long ago about God's command to Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to stand still. Yeah, but standing still is hard to do when death is barreling down on you. Physicians and nurses all know the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Whatever else you do, don't make the patient any worse than they are. Do nothing. When Japan invaded Manchuria in the early 1930s, two Christian ethicist brothers in the United States debated what the U.S. should do. Reinhold Niebuhr was the great ethicist of his age, and he said the U.S. had to intervene. Japan was expansionist and dangerous. If we don't do something now, it'll be worse later. Maybe he was right, geopolitically. But his brother, Richard Niebuhr, said no. Wait. First, do no harm. And he wrote an essay called The Grace of Doing Nothing. Now, this is against every instinct of my fellow Americans. We do stuff. 
We fix stuff. If something's wrong, we hustle it. No, Brother Richard said, let's first do no harm. I so wish my fellow Americans had taken that advice in Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, or at least done what y'all Canadians would have done and just talked the thing to death. Creative talking is so much better than fighting. A friend of mine lived in Palestine. He was walking one day and came upon a friend of his who had a flat tire. He'd called a wrecker and was waiting for the guy to come and fix the tire. And my American friend did a very American thing. He said, an expert to fix a tire? We can do this ourselves. Rolled up his sleeves and got to work. That's what we Americans do. We fix stuff. And these sleeves are harder to fix than I realized. And that's what we tried to do in Iraq. Let's fix this. And it didn't go very well. Wait for the Lord, Scripture often says. Think about those who are sick. When you're facing serious illness, often the only thing you can do is wait. Wait and see what happens. Wait and see if the doctor's cure works. Wait and stress and hopefully pray. You can tell a lot about any human being by figuring out what they're waiting for. Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, you think I did cool things? Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. You will do greater things than me. Uh, greater than healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead. Jesus says, yeah, greater than that. Just you wait. So the disciples are all together in one place. And Jerusalem is full of pilgrims. Jews from all over the world are there for the festival of Shavuot, a celebration for the giving of the law. This is what we celebrated at Holy Blossom with our Jewish neighbors. Rabbi Yael will preach in this pulpit in August as a return favor. So Jerusalem is chock full of people from all over the world. You heard them listed in the reading in Ukrainian, of course. Now this is some fun. Some of the people in the list that you heard Bob read didn't even exist anymore at the time when St. Luke wrote the book of Acts. This is a gathering of pilgrims from among the living and the dead. When our Jewish neighbors celebrate Shavuot, they say every Jew who's ever lived and ever will live is at the foot of Mount Sinai when God gives the law. That's good, right? And what happens? There's a profusion of tongues. There's an overflow of metaphors, a flurry of language, a giant wind, a hurricane, a phalanx of fire, a tongue of fire on each head. You know how Eastern Orthodox churches often have golden domes on top of them? That's an image for the tongue of fire at Pentecost. The Orthodox are the original Pentecostals. And the disciples can all speak in languages they've never learned. Jews from all over the world hear the twelve speaking of Jesus in their own language, not someone else's. Now, fire and wind are good metaphors for God. If you've been paying attention the last few months as we've preached through Exodus, when you hear fire, think of God. At Mount Sinai, there's fire at the top of the mountain. 
Moses sees the bush on fire. When the people need a guide through the wilderness, there's a pillar of fire. And when the prophet Elijah is on the same mountain, waiting for God, he hears a wind, and a hurricane cracks the rocks. To be honest with you, I didn't catch those references studying up for today. And I preached a lot of those sermons. I was fixated on the language bit. But speaking at the synagogue reminded me, oh yeah, this is about Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and how God is like fire, fascinating, life-giving, dangerous, and beautiful. But this sermon's on language. I was fixed on the languages because of the story of modern-day Pentecost. In 1905, there were zero people on planet Earth who called themselves Pentecostals. A few decades from now, there will be one billion people on planet Earth that call themselves Pentecostals. That's pretty good growth in an era when mainline churches do nothing but decline. What happened? There was a revival at a place called Azusa Street in Los Angeles, which was quite undeveloped in 1906. Now, most respectable so-called denominations like ours said speaking in tongues is not a thing that happens anymore. But at Azusa Street in 1906, they came up with something else. Charles Parham and William Seymour read the book of Acts and said, why not here? Why not now? among us. And what's maybe even more impressive is is that Charles Parham was white and William Seymour was black. And the Holy Spirit fell among the worshipers in a new way. They spoke in strange languages, they experienced miraculous healings, and black and white worshiped together in an America on fire. This is 1906. Now, even today, we respectable denominations tend to look down our nose at Pentecostals for being weird, less educated, slightly embarrassing cousins of ours. But Pentecostalism is still more multiracial than mainline churches are. And our denominations have been talking about racial reconciliation for 60 years and just gotten more monocultural. Maybe if we really want racial reconciliation, we should take up speaking in tongues. Who's with me? Nobody? All right. I get it. I'm not Pentecostal either. The Azusa Street Revival was a miracle, but it's not what happened at that first Pentecost. In the book of Acts, people can suddenly speak in languages they've never learned. This is not a private prayer language that sounds like gibberish to outsiders. This is not ecstatic unintelligible speech. There's a place for that. This is perfectly clear speech in a language you've never learned. Now, that's impressive, and that's hard to fake. If I claim to be speaking in Tagalog, all you have to do is ask Hannah, and she can say, that's not Tagalog, that's gibberish. He's making it up. It's very easy to falsify. I clarified this in Bible study on Tuesday, and one of the participants said, no one's going to believe that ever happened. Once in a while, we're honest (laughs) here in the church. We underestimate how important our native tongue is until we can't use it, until some stronger power comes and says, you're not allowed to speak your language anymore. 
or until we travel to some other place and we can't use our language. Our mother tongue, it's a perfect metaphor. The language our mother cooed us to sleep in, prayed over our crib in. Most religions have a holy language. Jews have Hebrew, Muslims have Arabic. We Christians do not. We were born in a plurality of languages on our very first birthday. And this is for a reason. Christianity can be translated into every language there is. And Bible translation is a radical act because it says your language is as good for bearing the gospel as any other. The tongue your mom prayed over you in is the one in which you can hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's some 6,500 known languages on the earth. 2,800 of them have some portion of the Christian scriptures translated into them. That's not bad, almost half. Some Bible translators say when we have all 6,500, Jesus will come back and bring his kingdom. That's a big, gaudy goal. Here's why translating the Bible is radical. Right now, in every corner of the earth, in Latin America, Asia, Africa, there's somebody working really hard to get the verbs just right in a new language so she can translate the scriptures into the tongue of her new friends. It's usually an African or an Asian woman doing this work. And right now, in the same country's capital, there's a person, usually a man, older, in a corner suite with a map on the wall with a pin in the map who wants to teach that village English so he can sell them hamburgers. I'm pulling for her to win. Translating the Bible into that language preserves that language, shields it from the onslaught of market forces. And it says God loves you enough to speak in your mom's language. Now, learning a language is really hard for most of us. There are language savants out there. They exist to make the rest of us feel badly. A friend of mine picked up a poet named Mikhail O'Shiel, speaks 18 languages. She picked him up from the airport. He found out she was from Brazil, and he said, oh, good, I haven't spoken Portuguese in a while. And they proceeded to speak Portuguese the entire hour home. Now, that's pretty impressive. Oh, and for the record, O'Shiel only speaks to cats in Gaelic. Apparently, cats only speak Gaelic. That's why they never listen to any of us non-Gaelic speakers. The word idiot etymologically means someone who speaks only one language. So most of us are, bad news this morning, I minored in Spanish in college and I'm still basically an idiot. You can ask any of our Spanish speakers and they will agree, which Irwin embarrassingly did after the first service. Duolingo has so many users, 300 of them, because most of us want to know a language, we just don't want to do the work to learn it, because that work is hard. In Acts, there is no difficulty, just immediate, miraculous fluency. And the sister at the Bible study is right, that's hard to believe. When I was in college, I studied abroad, visited Paris, as one does. Sorry to be a stereotype. Wasn't going to church at the time. Again, not very creative of me, just being honest. If you want to be unique while you study at university, 
Go to church. No one else is doing it. It'll be creative. Anyway, my friends and I visited Notre Dame Cathedral, and a French couple came up to us. This is rare. And they initiated conversation with us. This is even rarer. And in pretty poor English, they said, Pentecost today, fire from heaven, other languages, come to the church, food, drink, Jesus. And I couldn't believe it. It took Pentecost to get these Parisians to be nice to American tourists, to get French Catholics to evangelize American kids. I've known French people who wouldn't even speak French in Quebec. Their French is horrible here, they would say. But these Catholics were willing to stumble over English to tell us about the God of Pentecost. Maybe it's all true. Maybe God stammers in other languages to tell us about love. Language itself is a miracle. We don't usually think about it, but it is. I make some noises up here. They travel through space to your ears. You listen. And suddenly, what I'm thinking about materializes in your brain. That's actually amazing that that even works. And it happens all the time, and we don't even stop and notice how amazing it is in an instant. If no one will believe Pentecost's languages, well, it's hard to believe any of us communicate successfully ever. And we do it all the time. Sometimes it even works, even among my teenagers. Not usually. There's a great mythology around technologies of communication. Our age loves advances in gadgetry. So the first telegraph message was in 1844 from Washington to Baltimore, and it said, What hath God wrought? It sped for 40 miles in an instant, and the world stood amazed. As one historian said, no one from Alexander the Great till 1844 had any faster way to communicate than a galloping horse. Then the first radio signal, the first TV broadcast, the birth of the internet, cell phones, all amazing. You know what's even more amazing? Your kid can tell you she loves you. And you understand that. And something gets born. If we thought about it very long, we'd be dumbfounded at the sheer fact of human communication. So given the miracle of all human communication, it's not that surprising that some communication is just a bit more miraculous. While I was on that college trip, a friend and I went to Morocco, visited the Sahara Desert on camels, as one does. Our guides spoke only French and Berber, We spoke only English and sort of Spanish. And still, they managed to have us dancing around a fire, chanting in some language. I have no idea what. No alcohol involved. Strict Muslims. Until one of our group saw a scorpion in our midst. And they screamed. And we all screamed. And suddenly, the exotic idea of being in the Sahara Desert by ourselves seemed like a terrible idea. Scorpions are attracted to fire. Good. Glad we learned that in advance. And our guide started speaking in a mess of French and Berber. And I heard him name towns all around the area, and he kept saying Allah over and over again. And I turned to my friends and I said, oh, he's saying he's traveled all over this desert, 
and nothing bad ever happens because God protects him. And they looked at me like I'd grown a second head. I mean, he was speaking the language of religion, the way we talk when we're afraid. And I knew that language. And we were blessed to have a guide who believed in it that dark night. Sorry, you were telling me speaking in tongues doesn't happen? I don't have to believe in it. I've heard it. Another example, another part of Africa. I don't know why more miraculous things happen the farther you get from Europe and North America, but I do know it's true. The rest of the world has not been brainwashed out of the miraculous like we have. I was in Sudan with my beloved Old Testament teacher. There were a thousand people in the cathedral in Juba, South Sudan, 2,000 people outside. And the archbishop got up and said, in the Anglican church, we don't normally ask lay people to give the benediction. But my teacher is here who taught me how to love my Muslim neighbor. And so, Professor, would you? And she walked up there like someone out of the Bible, like Sarah herself, like Ruth had emerged, like Esther had come forward. And she raised her hands and gave Aaron's blessing in Arabic and then in Hebrew and then in English. And I'm crying. And I say to her afterwards, I couldn't believe you did that in Arabic. And she said, I didn't. And I said, yeah, I heard you. More importantly, a thousand people in the building and 2,000 people outside heard you. And she said, well, I don't know Arabic. I, I can say salam alaikum and a few other things. I said, I heard you. She said, whatever. Pass the mustard. She didn't know a language, but those gathered needed to hear it. And so God spoke the peace of Israel in a language they learned from their mom's prayers. God is still in the miracle business, y'all. Christians there in South Sudan asked Western friends for help building their new country. We're used to this in the West. Sure, what do you need? They asked for sustainable agriculture help. My home university, Duke, said, check, we got ag people. What else? And the South Sudanese said, biblical languages. Come again? They said, well, we've only had access to the Bible in the language of our colonizers, English and Arabic. But we South Sudanese are really good at language. So if you teach us Hebrew and Greek, we'll translate the Bible into the 60 tribal languages here in South Sudan. And so the university said, okay, somebody find some Bible nerds and put them on the plane beside the seeds. Imagine who we would have thought to send. My fellow Americans usually respond to oppressed people with weapons, military expertise. Canadians, Western Europe might have thought of human rights expertise and lawyers. But the Sudanese themselves said, bread first, biblical languages second, out of a love for speech. And I just hope we Westerners will stop and do nothing and listen and learn. God can make this gospel of Jesus' resurrections, God can make that make sense to anyone in any language. This promise that the Holy Spirit is birthing a whole new world. And God can tell people about it who don't want to hear it, who aggressively don't care, who are sure whatever Christianity has to teach is bad news or good news for someone else other than them, that there is nothing bigger in life. 
our world thinks the only point of being alive is to acquire more money to acquire more stuff. I shop, therefore I am. The Holy Spirit says, no, God can love a whole new universe into existence. And God can use you to do it. And God will speak to them in their most frightened place, to us in our most frightened place, and say, I love you. I'm making all things new. And they can join us and make us a new us we would never have imagined. You'll see. One day, everyone will see. Amen.